In mid-April of 1863, Major General Joseph Hooker oozed with confidence. So assured was he about his offensive preparations to defeat and in his mind destroy the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, he remarked to a group of his officers, My plans are perfect, and when I start to carry them out, may God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. This is not the story of Joe Hooker's greatest success, but that of the man he faced and his campaign. For our 50th podcast, this is the story of Robert E. Lee's greatest and perhaps costliest victory. This is the story of Chancellorsville. A note to those about to listen. The Chancellorsville campaign extended over several days and across the expanse of several locations and square miles. Its multi-layered tactics can at first seem as tangled as the secondary growth wilderness in which it was fought. To aid your understanding, please take advantage of the maps provided to fully appreciate the shifting stages of the fighting and the human endeavor required to achieve them. The maps are labeled by date and are presented in chronological order. Hopefully, they will allow one to more completely come to grips with the incredible odds that Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia overcame, and the reality of the timeless adage that battle is fluid. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Our story begins with Major General Joseph Hooker, a lifelong Democrat and anti-abolitionist. He was a bachelor who liked to gamble. And in that Victorian age, word had it that he didn't hold his liquor well, and that contributed mightily to those who believed him a rogue. Often, he spoke first and regretted what he said, if at all, later. Once he said what the country needed was a good dictator. In spite of that, Lincoln still picked him to head the Army of the Potomac. In so many words, the president said that, in spite of his big mouth, he was given command. Essentially, give the nation military victories and let me, President Lincoln, worry about dictatorships. In Hooker's youth, he put together a solid academic record at West Point but amassed numerous demerits for misconduct, a sign of things to come. Those demerits contributed to his graduating 29th of 50 in the class of 1837. During the conflict with Mexico, he crossed with Winfield Scott south of the border, and in California served with Henry Halleck. By 1863, Scott had retired Halleck, as Lincoln's general-in-chief, was Hooker's commanding officer. From earlier experiences, there was tension between the two. So much so that when Hooker took command in late January of 1863, he made clear he wouldn't deal with Halleck. Rather, he would go through Lincoln. Physically, Joe Hooker was tall, shapely, well-dressed, his complexion healthy. Topped with auburn hair and one who viewed the world through lucid blue eyes, he was a man of action. In a curious twist about action, the New York Times speculated, Everyone feels the new general will do one of two things, and that right speedily. Destroy the rebel army or his own. Though the press, the public, and his own army held mixed reviews about him, When Hooker took command, he made decisive moves, and they were great in number. 
In an effort to reinvigorate the Army of the Potomac, he relieved Major Generals William B. Franklin and Edwin Sumner, both of whom had been with Ambrose Burnside and underachieved at the Battle of Fredericksburg. In a move that drew scorn from the old military guard, he named Major General Daniel Butterfield as his chief of staff. Butterfield was not a West Pointer, but a business executive who ran the Eastern Division of the American Express Company before the war. In uniform, by 1862, Butterfield devised a single bugle call to direct his brigade on the battlefield, and also turned a disused bugle call into taps. There were more changes. He abolished Burnside's organization of grand divisions. They were, in his words, impeding rather than facilitating. He united his mounted element into one corps, a move that was some 15 months behind the Confederate lead. Those troopers were under Major General George Stoneman, Yet another organizational change stripped Brigadier General Henry J. Hunt of his overall command of the Army of the Potomac's artillery. Under Hooker, local commanders would control guns and hopefully increase tactical efficiency. Another innovation was his creation of a Secret Service or Bureau of Military Intelligence. That would be headed by Colonel George H. Sharp. Age 35 and holding a law degree from Yale, Sharp was charged with, for the first time, coordinating intelligence from a variety of sources, along with the usual interrogation of prisoners, deserters, contrabands, and refugees. His group would make use of cavalry and infantry reconnaissance. From recruited scouts from the army and spies from the local populace, signal stations, and aerial balloons. With all these changes and innovations, Hooker sought to restore the Army of the Potomac's morale, its elan, which had suffered greatly after the disaster that was Fredericksburg. He also moved on an idea that the late Union Major General Philip Kearney had used with his division. Kearney issued a diamond-shaped piece of red flannel to all his men, not only for identification, but to instill some organizational pride. It worked. And so Hooker played upon it. To each of his corps, he gave the following. The first corps received a disc, the second a trefoil, the third a diamond, the fifth a Maltese cross, the sixth a Greek cross, the eleventh a crescent, and the twelfth a star. Divisions under each would have colors, for example, the 1st Division of the 1st Corps would wear a red disc. The 2nd Division, 1st Corps, wore a white disc. And the 3rd Division had a blue one. Hooker also allowed regiments to add the names of all battles on battle flags it had fought in. And these innovations he identified with the common soldier. And they liked it. And there was more. He gave his inspector generals real authority and the end result was cleaned-up campsites, hospitals, and camp sanitation. Paydays were reestablished and regularly maintained. One of the greatest changes was his order that soft bread would now be issued four times a week. Fresh potatoes and onions were issued twice a week, and desiccated vegetables once a week. Each brigade would now have a bakery. Supply lines were cleared. 140 cars with a capacity of 800 tons unloaded needed supplies each day at Falmouth, not far from Fredericksburg. To make his men feel like soldiers, drills, inspections, and exercises were regularly implemented. Again, the common soldier noted all these innovations and appreciated them. Hooker also made changes with how his army would be covered. He mandated that henceforth... Any reporter traveling with his army would have to use a byline or be banished. In two months, the Army of the Potomac found Joe Hooker an efficient administrator, innovative reformer, and practiced military executive. His confidence was infectious, and it had better been 
for he was going to ask much of his army. In spring of 1863, this was the overall strategic picture. Major General William Rosecrans' Federal Army threatened Central Tennessee. Grant was closing in on Vicksburg. Charleston, South Carolina was menaced. North Carolina's coast, with the exception of Wilmington, was under Union control, and so was southeastern Virginia, both backdoors to Petersburg and Richmond. And Joseph Hooker was on the Rappahannock River. Confronting him was 56-year-old R.E. Lee, who had fallen ill that March. To his wife, Lee described his affliction as a violent cold. By April, he was on the mend, but not without episodes of pain in his chest, back, and arms. It was probably pericarditis, and very likely there was angina pectoris, the first signs of the heart disease that would take his life seven years later. Unlike Hooker's army, Lee could not feed his own. Stripped and wasting of the land in Virginia and the Confederate disaster that was its supply system meant the daily issue was only four ounces of bacon, one-third the standard meat ration, and 18 ounces of flour. Occasionally, some rice, sugar, and molasses found their way into the ration, but it was so bad that Union soldiers said that the Confederacy had a new general, general starvation. That, and news that the Federal Ninth Corps had shipped south, meant that, to counter, Lee's First Corps under Lieutenant General James Longstreet was ordered to the Suffolk, Virginia area. There, he was to try to liberate the southeastern corner of Virginia, and of utmost importance, serve as the Army of Northern Virginia's new commissary. Longstreet and two of his divisions, George Pickett and John Bell Hoods, were ordered there February the 18th, 1863. On April the 11th, 130 miles southeast from Lee, Longstreet began siege operations at Suffolk. If anything broke on the Rappahannock, Longstreet would not be available. His other two divisions, under Major Generals Richard Anderson and Lafayette McClaws, however, remained with Lee. With Longstreet gone, Lee depended heavily on his second corps commander, Lieutenant General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson, whose fame was at its greatest. The eyes and ears of Lee's army were, of course, under Major General James Ewell Brown Stewart. The site where Joe Hooker and R.E. Lee would clash would be in and around the Chancellor House. How it got there is worth an aside. Around 1812, the Orange Turnpike was built. It linked Orange Courthouse with Fredericksburg, and George Chancellor saw opportunity. He opened a tavern 10 miles west of Fredericksburg, where Eli's Ford Road intersected the turnpike. Made of brick, it stood two and a half stories high, and with lofty expectations, Chancellor named the tavern and its outbuildings Chancellorsville. George died in 1836, his widow in 1860. By April of 1863, ownership was in new hands, but despite that, there were chancellors still there, a widow of the brother of George, her son, and six daughters. The main roads that ran by or near the old tavern were the turnpike, and constructed in the 1850s, the Orange Plank Road. For the first six miles out of Fredericksburg, the two ran as one. Then the Plank Road looped off to the south before rejoining the turnpike at the Chancellor Tavern. Two miles further, they divided again and ran parallel to Orange Courthouse. Their greatest separation, three miles. Their alignment would have much to do with the tactical campaign that was Chancellorsville. In March and April of 1863, Hooker's Bureau of Military Intelligence scoured the area. They noted all fords and crossings in the nearby Rapidan and Rappahannock Rivers, up and downstream. They studied Lee's lifeline, the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad, its bridges and crossings. 
Their first report went to Hooker on March the 15th. In it, they did everything their commander could ever hope for. They identified all of Lee's divisions and all but three of his brigades. Having broken the code used by Confederate signalers, they knew Longstreet was away, and interestingly enough, soon learned the Confederacy had broken their system of signaling as well. By the end of March, Joe Hooker had 133,627 men. Yet, that number was deceiving. 37,200 were short-termers and due to leave the Army in the next three months. If Hooker was going to go on the offensive, he would have to move before they went home. And when he did would depend on the weather. His counterpart in gray... Well, Robert E. Lee had only 61,500 men, outnumbered two to one. His nearest reinforcements were 130 miles away, and his men were subsisting on half rations. All this meant he could not initiate action. Lee would be forced to await the next federal move. As to his adversary across the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg, Lee surmised that when Hooker attacked, The Confederacy would be able to receive it behind fortifications. He wasn't worried about his numbers because he believed Union intelligence continued to do what they had always done, inflate the size of his army. Lee also believed Hooker would not move until he got rid of his nine-month and two-year soldiers. Quite honestly, Lee thought Hooker was like all who had come before. And also, quite honestly, Robert E. Lee was wrong on every assessment. On April the 8th, the president came to visit Hooker and his army at Falmouth, Virginia. Fighting Joe fairly glowed with confidence. That was evident when Mr. Lincoln said, If you get to Richmond, General, only to be interrupted when Hooker interjected, Excuse me, Mr. President. But there is no if in this case. I am going straight to Richmond if I live. Calling in Hooker's second-in-command, Darius Couch, Lincoln remarked, I want to impress upon you two gentlemen in your next fight to put in all of your men. A little later, the 16th president commented about Hooker's big talk. Lincoln said, The hen may be the wisest creature for it cackles only when it has laid an egg. But quite honestly, Hooker had every reason to be confident. His Bureau of Military Intelligence correctly reported to him that the Confederate ration was one pint flour and one quarter pound of bacon or pork per diem, rice and a little sugar about every three weeks. Hooker reasoned that Lee, concerned about feeding his army, would have to remain on the defensive. He, Hooker, held the initiative. Therefore, his mission for George Stoneman's cavalry was vital. Hooker wanted them to move upstream, cross the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers, then head south to Hanover Courthouse, all the while wrecking depot of provisions, trains, cars, lines of telegraphic communication, and tear up tracks and bridges of the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. He emphasized that their watchword should be fight, fight, fight. Hooker hoped the raid would force Lee to abandon his lines, and then Hooker would fall on the retreating Confederate army. The Union commander wanted his mounted element to move April the 13th. As the date for George Stoneman's raid neared, Chief of Staff Butterfield remembered that the Confederates had broken their signal code and planned a ruse. On the 13th, he sent a message that read, Our cavalry is going to give Jones and the guerrillas in the Shenandoah a smash. The message was indeed intercepted, and it informed Lee, fearing a strike to the west, took the bait. He sent Jeb Stewart, his eyes and ears, with two brigades of cavalry to the west and thus created a 20-mile Confederate gap, which opened a door for Stoneman to begin his Federal raid. But despite all the intelligence and opportunity, Joe Hooker could not control his lieutenants and the weather. 
Stoneman wasted a day making elaborate plans to cross the Rappahannock, and then at 2 a.m. of the 15th, it began to rain in torrents. In 24 hours, the Rappahannock River rose seven feet. Meanwhile, Hooker began to fine-tune his closely guarded designs. He had several plans, but the upstream one to Kelly's Ford on the Rappahannock and then south over the Rapidan became his tactical plan of choice. With Stoneman's 7,400 mounted troopers hopefully playing havoc behind Lee's lines, Hooker would cross with elements of his army and a chase would begin. Lee, pulling back to cover his retreat and supply lines, would be at the mercy of an aggressive Hooker in pursuit. To execute his plan, Hooker would move two corps, his first and sixth downstream from Fredericksburg to be a diversion. He would, for a while, leave the second and third in Fredericksburg, and the fifth, eleventh, and twelfth would move upstream to get around Lee's left flank and rear. Those flanking columns were selected not by military bearing, but because their camps were farthest away from Confederate eyes at Fredericksburg. This flying column, as Hooker called it, could move without detection. The 5th Corps march from Falmouth to Kelly's Ford was 23 miles. For the 11th and 12th, 36 miles. Early on Monday, April 27th, Hooker's campaign began. Artillery and ambulances were reduced to facilitate speed. Only enough wagons to carry forage for animals. Before leaving camp, there was no trash burning, and on the march, there was no music, no bugle, march calls, or cheering. 39,795 men moved believing, and justifiably so, that they were about to turn Bobby Lee. Back at Fredericksburg, directly across the river from Lee's prying eyes, all seemed routine. There was even a review at 10 a.m., which Hooker personally attended. Meanwhile, columns moved westward, and their march continued the next day, the 28th, and the next, all unnoticed thanks in large part to the absence of Stewart's troopers. By the evening of April the 29th, and with 23,800 men and 96 guns of the 1st and 6th Federal Corps moving downstream from Fredericksburg, the crossings upstream on the Rapidan were seized. Stoneman that same day finally crossed to the south side as well. Hooker's plan was in motion, and it was working. Indeed, it was 60 hours into the campaign before Lee issued his first order in response to it all. He learned of Hooker's flank march upstream from Stewart, who, after finding little Union activity farther west, drifted back east where his cavalry clashed with elements of the Union flying column. Lee now had to discern which of the two Union columns was the main strike, the one upstream or downstream. And to add to the active chessboard, the 2nd and 3rd Corps, some 30,400 men, now moved upstream from Fredericksburg to Banks Ford to serve as potential reinforcements. For the moment, Lee kept Jackson in place on the heights at Fredericksburg to watch the Union 1st and 6th Corps, and ordered Richard Anderson's division of Longstreet's Corps west toward the Chancellorsville area. There, the 41-year-old South Carolinian made one of the best decisions of his military career. Believing the ground around the Chancellor House too exposed, Anderson moved his forces back three and a half miles to the east, digging in at Tabernacle and Zoan churches. It was April 30th, day four of Hooker's campaign. Around 4 a.m. that day, Major General George Gordon Meade's 5th Corps edged forward in the foggy early light of a new day. It was raining lightly, and he and his men were south of the Rapidan. They only had five more miles to reach their objective, the Chancellor House, via Eli's Ford Road. Elements of his corps reached that point around noon. The 12th Corps, then the 11th, arrived mid-afternoon. All secured the area without Confederate interference. 
So well had the campaign gone that the usually dour Mead was beside himself. This is splendid. Hurrah for old Joe. We are on Lee's flank and he does not know it. Hooker was informed. And that evening, the 30th, he issued a proclamation crowing, It is with heartfelt satisfaction the commanding general announces to the army that the operation of the last three days have determined that our enemy must ingloriously fly or come out from behind their defenses and give us battle on our ground where certain destruction awaits him. Quite honestly, Joe Hooker had good reason to crow. Sensing opportunity, Meade wanted to push eastward toward Fredericksburg and Lee's rear, but Hooker reined him in. The commanding general wanted his 2nd and 3rd Corps in the vicinity, and they would arrive the next day, Friday, May the 1st. That was Hooker's plan all along. His objective for the first day of May was to push eastward and, by doing so, uncover Banks Ford, which would then allow the 2nd and 3rd Corps to cross over unmolested to the south side of the Rappahannock River. Still not absolutely sure of Hooker's intent, Lee, on Thursday, April the 30th, ordered his men to entrench. It was unprecedented. He had never given that order in the 11 months he had held command. From Lee's Hill, just west of Fredericksburg, he did make one decisive decision. With his glass, he studied the Federals of the 1st and 6th Corps, and with his trained eye, after a few minutes, abruptly closed his glass and said to a member of his staff, The main attack will come from above. He gave orders for Jackson to march west the next morning to join Anderson. However, he was to leave behind at Fredericksburg Jubal Early's Confederate Division. McClaw's division, save one brigade, was also to move. In other words, four-fifths of Lee's army, some 36,300 men with 33 batteries, marched west, leaving only 12,400 men and 65 guns under Jubal Early's command to confront all those Union forces still in Fredericksburg and those downstream. Around 6 p.m. that day, Hooker and his staff arrived at the Chancellor House. He was aglow. God Almighty could not prevent me from winning a victory tomorrow. It was a great stage, for at that moment, some 100,000 men in blue and butternut and gray were converging on a 70-square-mile section known locally as the Wilderness. The area had been the site of a primitive iron industry, and most of the first-growth timber had been cut to make charcoal to feed the furnaces. Now it was mostly secondary-growth dwarf pine, cedar, hickory, and scrub oak. It was dark eerie, and often impenetrable. Scattered about boggy lowlands and waterways, crisscrossing deeply cut ravines, vines, briars, and entangling underbrush made the tactically maddening scene complete. There were few clearings. One was at a place called Fairview. Another was at Hazel Grove, and the largest, 70 acres, was at the Chancellor House. For communication, Lee would have to depend on couriers and signaling. The Federals would, too. But they also had telegraphic wire laid all the way back to Fredericksburg. One innovation of that medium was the Beardsley Patent Magnetoelectric Field Telegraph. Messages could be sent with synchronized pointers. Its reliability was about five miles, and sure enough, from the evening of the 30th to midday May the 1st, it malfunctioned, and Hooker's right had partial to total blackout with its left. That would have consequences. On the first day of May, Confederate fronts were shifting. Joe Hooker's Day 5 objective was of his 72,000 men and 31 batteries near the Chancellor House, move 29,250 and 26 guns east from Chancellorsville to seize the heights south of the Rappahannock behind Banks Ford, outflank any Confederates there and any west of Fredericksburg. 
Major General Daniel Sickles' 3rd Corps was to cross the Rappahannock, and John Sedgwick's 6th Corps back at Fredericksburg was to cross the Rappahannock and do what no Union soldier could do back on December the 13th, 1862, seize Marie's Heights by 2 p.m. Yet, the telegraph was still acting up, and so Hooker was not informed of Jackson's westward march, which was seen and reported. At 10.30 a.m., Meade moved forward. By mid-afternoon, elements of his 5th Corps had the Rappahannock in sight, and Banks Ford was only a mile or two ahead. All seemed well. And then, about that time, a lathered horse overtook Meade's column with orders to counter-march and return to their original position. Hooker did not expect any fighting in his movement eastward that day. And Meade had encountered no resistance, but his 2nd Division, as it moved eastward on a parallel road to the south, the Orange Turnpike, ran headlong into Lafayette McClaw's Georgians, and elements of Henry Slocum's 12th Corps collided with Jackson's men farther to the south. 48,300 Confederates had moved some 10 miles west and boldly confronted their Union foe. Lee had responded aggressively. Surprised but not shaken, Hooker ordered his men to return to the Chancellor House, and he immediately sent a telegraph for Sedgwick to cross the Rappahannock and begin his attack on Fredericksburg. He sent that message at 11.30 a.m. Yet, it did not reach his chief of staff, Daniel Butterfield, until 4.55 that afternoon, a lapse time of almost five and a half hours. Result? Sedgwick never moved. As to Hooker's order to fall back, Meade, Slocum, and Couch were all puzzled. Hooker's rationale for doing so came from information supplied by his Bureau of Military Intelligence, which told him that Confederate forces opposing him numbered 48,000. Actually, 48,300. And his marching columns numbered only 30,000. By nightfall, Hooker's columns were all gathered around or west of the Chancellor House. For fighting Joe, he admitted he had been checked, but was not by any stretch of imagination disheartened. He had his men south of the river, and they had indeed drawn Lee out of his fortified lines at Fredericksburg. Late that night, he planned day six. His main concern was his right, Howard's 11th Corps. He wanted to swing it back to anchor it on the south bank of the Rapidan. He chatted with Howard, who thought any retrograde move might demoralize his men. Hooker did wonder about Longstreet's possible arrival from the southeast. Word was that Confederate trains were still running north from Richmond, but Sharp and his Bureau of Military Intelligence reassured their commander that Hooker was facing troops from Anderson, McClaws, Rhodes, Trimble, and A.P. Hill, not one from Longstreet's two missing divisions. They also reported that Jubal Early was still at Fredericksburg. In both reports, they were right on. Hooker had an accurate picture. The irony, he wasn't sure about his own forces, particularly those on his left. To ease his concern for his right, he decided to bring Reynolds' first corps upstream and place it on Howard's right flank. He sent that message and wanted Reynolds in place by mid-afternoon the next day, May the 2nd. The order was sent at 1.55 a.m. of the 2nd. However, somehow, the courier carrying the dispatch to the telegraph station, which was five miles away at U.S. Ford, got lost. By the time he did arrive and the message was sent, received, and then forwarded to Reynolds, it was 4.55 in the early morning. The consequence? 16,900 men of the Union First Corps spent May 2nd marching upstream rather than being on the scene and digging in to protect O.O. Howard's right flank. Oh, the cruel irony for around dusk of May the 1st. Two men gathered by a fire near the intersection of the Plank and Catherine Furnace Roads. There, 
one and a quarter miles east of Chancellorsville. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson set themselves down on a fallen log and a little clearing in the woods and discussed what to do. When Joe Hooker pulled back on May the 1st, he surrendered initiative to a man who needed no invitation to seize it. With information provided by Stewart and particularly Fitzhugh Lee, Jackson and Lee learned that five miles west of Chancellorsville, Hooker's right, Howard's 11th Corps, was in air. Lee wanted to turn that flank, and that's all Stonewall Jackson needed to hear. All that remained was to find a route, and Jackson's chaplain general, Beverly Tucker Lacey, was sent for. He had had a church in the area and therefore knew the roads. With his help, map maker Jed Hotchkiss and a local Charles C. Welford, the proprietor of Catherine Furnace, a route was found that would allow Confederate infantry to move across the entire front of the Union line without detection. Meeting at end, Jackson stood and simply said, My troops will move at four o'clock. The rest of the evening passed, and then before dawn of Saturday the 2nd of May, Lee and Jackson were once again seated by a fire, this time on empty cracker boxes discarded by the Federals the day before. The route of the flank march was again discussed, and eventually Lee asked of his lieutenant, Well, General Jackson, what do you propose to do? Jackson answered, I propose to go right around there. Lee followed up with, what do you propose to do it with? Jackson answered, with my whole command. Lee then asked, what will you leave me here to hold the Federal Army with? And without hesitation, Jackson said, the two divisions that you have here. There was a pause, and Lee then said, well, go ahead. That meant Robert E. Lee would on May the 2nd, face 72,300 enemy troops and 184 guns with only 14,900 men and 24 guns. After earlier dividing his army in the face of superior numbers, he was about to do it again. A little later that morning, the two met once more. At the start of the march, Lee stood quietly by the roadside. They spoke briefly. No one knows what was said. It would be the last time they would ever speak to one another. The route was about 10 or 11 miles in length and made use of existing roads and some recently cut for wood-cutting operations for the furnace. Fifteen brigades of infantry and 108 guns. Three and a half regiments from Stewart's cavalry served as escort. Robert Rhodes' division led the column. They began right around seven in the morning. The end of the column stepped off four hours later. The dawn had been chilly, but by now it was a beautiful May day, breezy and pleasant. The roads were soft and damp from recent rain, and there was no choking dust. They marched four abreast at two miles per hour, one mile every 25 minutes, 10 minutes each hour to rest. Midday meal was 15 minutes. Though they made good time with the late start, Jackson knew it would be a race for daylight. At one point, their route took them over a stretch of high open ground, and Union observers in tall trees spotted them. Made aware, Daniel Sickles asked permission if he could advance his third corps to harass the procession. Out personally inspecting his lines, Hooker was not at his headquarters when the message arrived. However, on his return, Sickles got what he wanted. He moved out. The 23rd Georgia had been detailed to block any Union attempt to disrupt the march, and they met Sickles' probe. As the sparring began, Jackson's men marched on. The 23rd Georgia did their job. They protected Jackson's column, but at the sacrificial cost of three wounded and 296 captured. 
taunted by their captors, one Georgian could stand it no longer. And he barked out, you'll catch hell before night. Their comrades moved on to make that prediction a reality. On they marched, groping for the exposed flank and rear of the 11th Corps, which was under, as we've mentioned, Major General Oliver Otis Howard. With Jackson's column spotted, although its intent was not determined, Howard was warned in a message from Hooker that was dated at 9.30 that morning. It was delivered at 10, and Hooker received word at 10.50 that Howard was taking measures. That was pure fantasy. While Jackson marched, Hooker sent a message for Sedgwick back at Fredericksburg to attack if an opportunity presented itself. But discretion was not in Sedgwick's makeup. He did little, if anything. Then another issue that damned Joe Hooker that day. In Sickles' probe, he reported that Jackson's column at one point had turned south. Indeed, it did for a while before it turned back to the west. But that southward turn convinced Sickles and when informed Hooker that Lee was retreating. Add to that muddled picture an earlier Confederate order to Jubal Early, which had him leaving his lines at Fredericksburg and heading west. That movement was quickly picked up and, when reported, sold all the more that Robert E. Lee and his army were retreating to the southwest. Taken to heart, Hooker, around 2.30 that afternoon, informed his corps commanders to be ready to pursue the next morning. In the flank march, four times Jackson's men were seen. Each time, the report was dismissed, misconstrued, or ignored. And so Jackson's Confederate column moved on. Around 3 p.m., Jackson began to align his attack, which took the rest of the afternoon. Three lines of infantry, each separated by some 200 yards. 21,500 men and eight guns. As they faced east, the exposed flank and rear of the Army of the Potomac. It was about 5.45 p.m. on Saturday, May the 2nd. Sun was low in the west one half mile away, just under 11,000 men of the 11th Corps, about two-thirds German or of recent German descent. Eight of the 23 regiments in line had never been in battle before, and not one of them thus far in the war had been on the winning side of any battle. None of their officers showed concern, so the men cooked, played cards, and whiled away the time. Then a sudden commotion. Quail, frantic deer, and rabbits all racing from out of the west. Then came the thunderclap from a clear blue sky. Amusement instantly morphed into sheer terror. Jackson's men were upon them. The scene in horror made worse by the wild, blood-curdling scream of the rebel yell. Whole Union units went to pieces. In the next one and a half hours, Jackson's men drove the entire 11th Corps some one and a half miles. Hearing Jackson's guns, Lee passed orders along his entire line to press them heavily everywhere. For Jackson, it was his finest tactical hour, and he wanted more. He wanted his men to continue the attack into the night, cut off federal retreat at United States Ford. So under a full moon, he moved eastward on the plank road to personally perform reconnaissance. His party included about 12 men. As they moved forward, they passed through Brigadier General James H. Lane's North Carolina Brigade. From north to south, their alignment was the 28th, then 18th regiments on the north side of the road, and the 37th and the 7th regiments to the south. The 33rd North Carolina was out in front as skirmishers. Warned of Union cavalry operating in the vicinity and unaware that Jackson, or for that matter, their division commander, A.P. Hill, were in front of their line, Jackson about 150 yards and Hill about 50 or 60, Jackson's party in the twilight sounded like cavalry. And so there was a shot. And that report spawned more. 
As the volley of fire rolled northward, Lieutenant Joseph Morrison of Jackson's staff raced back toward the Carolinians, shouting, You are firing into your own men! In gathering darkness, Major John Berry of the 18th North Carolina suspected trickery and shouted, Who gave that order? It's a lie! Pour it into them! The response, though rational and prudent given the conditions, haunted him for the rest of his days. One bullet hit Jackson in the back of his right hand. Another struck his left forearm, and a third splintered the bone in his upper left arm near the shoulder. With all the commotion, a fire fight began, and with great difficulty, Jackson was carried to the rear. When he reached his surgeon, Dr. Hunter McGuire, Jackson told him, I'm badly injured, doctor. I fear I am dying. With both Jackson and Hill wounded, the great flank attack ended. And so began the search for Jeb Stewart to take command since he was the senior ranking officer. Finally found and informed, he arrived on the scene around midnight. Of all the Federals had been knocked back on their heels, there was still much fighting to be done. First and foremost, for Confederate concern, Lee's left and right wings at Chancellorsville were separated about one and a quarter miles. Across the way, Hooker wanted to regain initiative and planned to attack along with Sedgwick the next day. Back in Fredericksburg, in part due to Union delay in communication and Sedgwick's deliberateness, he was still two miles away from attacking any Confederate position there, and had he been successful, Chancellorsville was still another ten miles to the west. He would not be on hand to help Hooker at first light the next morning. Commanding General learned that fact at 6 a.m. on May the 3rd, day 7 of his campaign. Taken aback and to ensure his army's safety, Hooker contracted his lines, which meant withdrawing Sickles' 3rd Corps from one of the few clearings in the area, Hazel Grove. That decision proved costly, as Confederate artillery soon occupied Hazel Grove, and from that position they could not only fire on Union-held Fairview, but even Hooker's headquarters at the Chancellor House. Meanwhile, foot soldiers from both armies collided at first light. Jackson's men, now under Jeb Stewart and numbering around 31,900, drove straight ahead into Sickles' 3rd and Slocum's 12th Corps. Fighting that day was as vicious as the ground they fought over. The five hours of combat amidst the tangled secondary growth went back and forth until sheer Confederate numbers and Confederate artillery on Hazel Grove proved decisive. Confederate artillerist E.P. Alexander had some 50 guns on high ground. Fourteen more advanced along the plank road, and one round from one Confederate piece proved to have incredible consequences. The shell hit a column at the Chancellor House that Hooker was leaning against. Split along its entire length, one half of the column struck Hooker from head to foot, and for a period of time he was rendered helpless. Though suffering from concussion-like symptoms, he would not relinquish command. And therefore, the sorely pressed Army of the Potomac was paralyzed for the next few hours. Temporarily leaderless, the fighting continued, and by 10 o'clock that morning, the Federals were driven from virtually every position south of the Plank Road. When Lee rode from his original position to Hazel Grove, it meant his army was again reunited. By about 11, after five hours of bloody fighting, the ground around Chancellorsville was seized. Lee now rode from Hazel Grove to the Orange Plank Road and turned eastward. It was a mile-long cavalcade of triumph, the greatest moment in his military life. But it had come with great cost. Raleigh Colston's Confederate division under Stewart had lost 29% of his men. A.P. Hill and Robert Rhodes' divisions had each lost 24%. Never had the Army of Northern Virginia lost so many in battle in so short a time. 
8,962 casualties. Seven of Stewart's brigade commanders were down, three of them killed or mortally wounded. And Stewart and Lee's commands, no fewer than 40 regimental commanders or their replacements were casualties. Eleven of the 40 killed or mortally wounded. Federal casualties were 8,623, only 339 fewer than the Confederates, and the Union men had been on the defensive. One major general had been killed, two brigadier generals wounded, and one brigadier general captured. 32 regimental commanders or their replacements, casualties, eight killed, 18 wounded, six who had surrendered. The total... 17,585 casualties in five hours of combat exceeded before on only two days of the war at Sharpsburg and Fredericksburg. And both of them had been all-day affairs. To repeat, this one, five hours. And yet, even this day, Joe Hooker had one more card to play, and it involved Major General John Sedgwick again, who used his Sixth Corps to do what no federal could not do back on December the 13th. At about the very same time that Confederate forces drove Hooker away from Chancellorsville, Sedgwick's men, 27,166 guns, stormed and overwhelmed two Confederate regiments. 1,200 men from Mississippi and eight guns on Marie's Heights. Lee, who about noon was organizing another attack on Hooker's withdrawing forces, watched as a frantic courier raced up to him. The message? Fredericksburg had fallen. The enemy had a clear path to his rear from the east. And yet, it was Sedgwick who was leading them. So three and a half hours had transpired since his capture of Marie's Heights and his men had moved westward only one and a half miles. Chancellorsville was still eight miles away. Plenty of time for elements of Anderson and McClaw's Confederate divisions to turn and meet him. Sedgwick expected only a skirmish on his way west, and instead he got a full-pitched battle at Salem Church. That's why there would be some 1,523 Union casualties there at Salem Church to only 674 Confederate. His repulse left him puzzled. With his back to the Rappahannock, Sedgwick could return to Fredericksburg or head toward Banks Ford. Hooker was little help as he was still suffering from his concussion, periods of deep sleep and fitful wakefulness. A day's in, May 3rd became the second bloodiest day of the American Civil War. 21,357 casualties, second only to Antietam. In the evening, Hooker decided to remain on the defensive, and that's exactly how Lee wanted him. The Southern chieftain wanted to hit an isolated Sedgwick the next day. Another reason for Hooker's defensive posture, word was circulating that Longstreet had arrived from southeastern Virginia. Hooker's Bureau of Military Intelligence doubted it, but the possibility lingered in the back of Hooker's clouded mind. The next day, May 4th, day 8 of Hooker's campaign, Jubal Early retook Marie's Heights, which effectively prevented Sedgwick from returning to Fredericksburg, and Early now wanted to attack him, and Lee was eager to allow him. In the fighting that began, Sedgwick's men fought for their very lives. Though hemmed in by Anderson, McClaws, and blunting Early's attempts to turn his left, the Federals held. But Sedgwick now wondered what next stay where he was, and join Hooker when he went over to the offensive or maintain a defensive posture and await arrival from his commander. Meanwhile, Hooker decided that if Lee did not attack him on May the 5th, he was going to strike him. He would cross his army at U.S. Ford, march seven miles down to Banks Ford, recross to the South Bank, join Sedgwick, and strike To do that, Sedgwick had to hold against the some 23,000 arrayed against him. With that number facing Sedgwick and Lee's attention squarely on him, Jeb Stewart had only 21,000 to face Hooker's main force. 
Lee was so set on mauling Sedgwick's isolated force that for the first time in his Civil War career, Lee wanted a night attack, but it did not materialize. Back to Sedgwick. Though inflicting one quarter more casualties than he had suffered on the 4th, in John Sedgwick's mind, his 6th Corps was whipped and communicated such to Hooker who, as mentioned earlier, had hoped to attack the next day. Sedgwick's message reached Hooker at 1 a.m. of May the 5th. He was hemmed in, recommended withdrawal. Hooker was stunned. Extremely disappointed, he returned a message to withdraw north across the river. And then something happened. For only a few minutes later, another message from Sedgwick which announced, I shall hold my position as ordered on the south bank of Rappahannock. Hooker immediately rescinded his earlier order to withdraw. But fate again. Remember on the first day of fighting, Hooker's signal corps had a blackout that kept him from communicating with Sedgwick? And early on Saturday, May the 2nd, a bumbling courier got lost carrying communication for Reynolds to move upstream and get on Howard's right? Now a third piece of bad luck. Hooker's order to recross reached Sedgwick at 2 a.m. Tuesday, May the 5th. Sedgwick obeyed immediately. Hooker's order to stay was sent at 1.20 a.m., but somehow did not reach the 6th Corps commander until 3.20 a.m., too late. Down on the picket line at the river near Fredericksburg, a conversation between two common soldiers epitomized the overall situation. One in blue asked a Confederate picket what time it was, and the Southerner replied, It's time you Yankees was leaving. It was that night, the evening of May 5th, 6th, fighting Joe Hooker ordered all his forces to withdraw. The recrossings began, and soon enough, the Army of the Potomac was back in its old camps near Fredericksburg at Falmouth. It seemed nothing had changed. Yes, Union defeat. But unlike Fredericksburg, there was no demoralization, no wholesale desertions. Some actually thought this was just another of Hooker's maneuverings. However, if there was one common thread... It was one of puzzlement. Adding to that feeling was Hooker's congratulatory address to his troops. When Lincoln learned of the retreat, he repeated, What will the country say? Oh, what will the country say? In fact, the country said little. The problem was within the officer corps who evidently lost faith in Joe Hooker. On May the 7th, the president arrived at Falmouth to visit. There were the usual reviews and glad-handing, and unfortunately for the Army of the Potomac, where politics too often prevailed, Henry Slocum and Darius Couch cornered the president to voice their concern about their commander. Slocum suggested George Meade, but George Meade wanted nothing to do with it. When Lincoln left, he wondered... Had Hooker's command been jeopardized? Sure, Joseph Hooker had made his share of mistakes in the campaign, poorly apportioning his cavalry between guarding and raiding, taking Henry Hunt from artillery command, giving up Hazel Grove the morning of the fight on May the 3rd, and waiting a day too long to take the offensive. Yet none of those mistakes cost him the Battle of Chancellorsville. His chief engineer, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, summed it up perfectly when he said, Our great weakness, in my opinion, is in the incompetency of many of our corps commanders. Indeed, Joseph Hooker's lieutenants served him poorly in the campaign. Of his eight commanders, four failed him. Brigadier General George Stoneman who returned from his so-called raid and from Bealton Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad telegraphed, the raid's merits and results must be judged of by those competent to pass a judgment. Well, Hooker felt competent. With orders to fight, 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 
a cavalry casualty list numbering only 200 out of 7,400, and 75% of those casualties from straggling. Joe Hooker acted quickly. On May the 22nd, Stoneman was relieved of his command. Another who failed him, Major General O.O. Howard, who ignored Hooker's warnings and left his 11th Corps susceptible to Jackson's flank attack. It was this corps that took the blame for the defeat at Chancellorsville. One division commander, Major General Karl Schurz, a German in the predominantly German corps, said simply, The spirit of this corps is broken. In German communities across the North, support for the war was never the same after Chancellorsville. Another commander who let Hooker down was the commander of the Third Corps, Major General Daniel Sickles, who incorrectly surmised that Jackson's flanking column was retreating on May the 2nd. And finally, Major General John Sedgwick, whose struggle with independent command contributed to his repeated missing of opportunities, tactically and strategic. For Major General Joseph Hooker, not only had four of his commanders failed him, but it seemed Lady Luck did as well. The three untimely communication snafus and the shot that incapacitated him in the middle of the battle on May the 3rd. In defeat, his army suffered 1,694 dead, 9,672 wounded, 5,938 missing, a total of 17,304 casualties. His campaign began with great expectations, and now he was back where he started with officers who had deep concerns about his leadership. To Mr. Lincoln's question of what next, Hooker wanted to wait until the short-termers were gone. The comment further reinforced the commander-in-chief's belief that the commander of the Army of the Potomac's leadership was compromised. For the victorious Robert E. Lee, the Southern press, the public, and history itself hailed the victory as his greatest. Outnumbered, outgunned, and at the outset, outmaneuvered, Lee overcame all. Quite honestly, he outgeneraled Joseph Hooker. Yet, even more than after Fredericksburg, Robert E. Lee was depressed. He had won a great victory, but could not follow it up. Yes, he literally resupplied his own army from captured Union goods, 13 cannon, 19,500 rifles, mountains of ammo and materiel, but at what cost? His Army of Northern Virginia had 1,724 dead, 9,233 wounded, 2,503 missing, for a total of 13,423% of his infantry casualties, and made worse by the horrific loss amongst his Army's senior officers, a division commander, 11 brigade commanders, and countless regimental commanders, ah, and one corps commander, who on May the 5th, was taken to Thomas Coleman Chandler's place at Guinea's Station on the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad line some 12 miles south of Fredericksburg. Inside an outbuilding, Lieutenant General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson seemed to be recovering nicely, but in the early hours of May the 7th, took a turn for the worse. Pneumonia had set in. Lee learned that his lieutenant would not survive Sunday, May 10th. After a service held that morning, Lee sought out Reverend Lacey, who was headed to Jackson's bedside. And Lee told him, When a suitable occasion occurs, tell him that I prayed for him last night as I never prayed for myself. Overcome by emotion, he turned away. It would seem that the whole Confederacy was riveted on the scene unfolding in that tiny bedroom with the ticking clock on the mantel. The same one that, if you visit, ticks to this day.
Despite all the Southern prayers, at 3.15 that Sunday afternoon, Stonewall Jackson crossed the river to rest in the shade of the trees. Chancellorsville had been he and Lee's finest hour. But now he was gone, trauma worthy of Shakespeare. Well aware that he had to continue to hold the strategic initiative, Robert E. Lee planned a new invasion. Hoping it would be the last campaign of the war, he would make it with many in new levels of command and without the man who teamed to give him his greatest victory. An army of fate, driven by fate, to a small little town in southern central Pennsylvania, Gettysburg. Next time, we take to open water and explore the career of a Confederate commerce raider that spanned the globe. Perhaps the most well-known southern instrument of war on the high seas will tell the story of a vessel built by the British which served the Confederacy and for two years was the scourge of the Union's merchant marine. I hope you'll join us when we spin the story of a wooden ship crewed by men of iron. Next up, the CSS Alabama. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.